Hello everyone and welcome to the second Lean in Malaysia coffee chat series. We have a very interesting topic for today's session. Um, I hope all of you are taking care of yourself and staying safe during this challenging and very tough time, uh, which is why we want to enlighten you with our coffee chat series. As it has been very interesting to see how governments and companies from all around the world are handling the situation and also seeing your cooking and baking stories, we do not discount the fact that many have suffered from job and income losses due to the pandemic and the current situation we are in. And so I just want to set the tone with all of you here. We just want to share a few facts uh, just to set the background and set the tone as to why uh, this session on personal finance is so important, especially among women. In worldwide, um, the lockdown measures have affected 2.7 billion of workers, representing 81% of the world's workforce. Although arguably everyone from different parts of the world is equally impacted by this pandemic and the certainty that has lies upon us, the reality is the impact on women are actually disproportionate to men and in fact are far worse because generally women earn lesser, hold lesser secure jobs. And when you earn lesser and you hold lesser um, secure jobs, you tend to save lesser because you have lesser income. And also when you hold lesser secure jobs, you tend to lose your job easily as well. Um, so there is also a disproportionate in uh, disproportion in the allocation of female and male in the workforce. Just looking by industry specifics, um, for example, airline industry, women overrepresent this sector because they work as stewardess, and um, due to the pandemic, they have been laid off from work. And let's just um, have a quick look on the industries that were severely impacted and still are severely impacted by COVID-19, which is airline industry, tourism, hospitality, and informal economy. Informal economy is not an industry, but uh, we just want to put it in here as well just to highlight that people who basically earn from informal economy are also affected. So these are your day-to-day street vendors, your domestic workers, and they basically earn income on a daily basis. And because of COVID-19 and the, ma- the lockdown measure, they really have um, lost their form of income. And the fact is women are overly represented in this industry. So when you put two and two together, it kind of shows a message and it tells a message that um, women are impacted by personal finance. Uh, they are really impacted by COVID-19 and the loss of job, loss of income which is why that makes personal finance very, very important. And also just want to share that women form 67% of the health workforce globally, globally, and they are putting their health at risk on the front line dealing with the virus. So, you know, women across the world are already shouldering the burden of unpaid and low-paid care work um, in the beginning. Uh, but due to caring responsibilities um, because of the COVID-19, uh, it's falling even harder on women who are more likely to earn less uh, work part-time and uh, be in more insecure work. So the past week, we've heard about the shutting down of Blue Ink, Esprit, G Tower Hotel, indicating that there are more, uh, you know, there are more shutdowns coming. And again, women technically dominate these industries. So to quote um, from a report by the United Nations, this year, 2020 will mark the 25th anniversary of the Beijing platform that was intended to be groundbreaking for gender equality. However, this pandemic is deepening pre-existing inequalities and economic systems. In fact, it may bring us back to square one in obtaining an equal world. Um, It has also put all our efforts from the past uh, to fight for, to basically advocate for gender equality. Um, It has definitely put those efforts to vain, uh, a situation of two steps forward, three steps back. And so all I'm saying is when you link all these facts together, it really shows that women are at a disadvantage, especially um, highlighting the reality that even in a pre-pandemic situation, women are already um, being paid lesser as compared to their male uh, counterparts. And also uh, due to this lockdown and people losing their income, uh, you know, a lot of everyone is really suffering. And we're not saying that, um, uh, we're not saying, we're we're not discounting the fact that males are losing their jobs as well. Um, But it really shows that, um, you know, more women are going to lose their jobs. And especially if uh, women who are forced to live in extremely vulnerable situations, uh, simply because they do not have the freedom to leave, um, you know, they would suffer even more, especially those in uh, domestic abuse. And so money really provides security and freedom to manage one's life. 
And so this, you know, this kind of says uh, it's even more important to have and manage your own personal finance just so that you could get yourself out from living in an, uh, an extremely vulnerable situation. And also, we just uh, just want to share that statistically, statistically speaking, uh, twice as many men have been dying from the COVID-19 virus as compared to women. And similar patterns have been seen in China, Europe, uh, America, Asia. And so, you know, if I speak in an actuarial um, tone, so actuarially speaking, uh, female do have higher mortality rate. Uh, when you put two things together, it seems like, you know, females, we're going to live, uh, we're going to survive a little longer. And this makes personal finance all the more important, um, especially among women. So that's enough of me talking, uh, uh, and which is why we have two very distinguished financial experts today who have been kind enough to spend time and share their wisdom on personal finance to all of you here today. So please welcome Ian Wong, a graduate from London School of Economics with a bachelor degree in actuarial science, but then deviated to a licensed financial planner and partner with IPP Financial Planning Group, Malaysia. And Lexi Lee, who is an industry analyst with CFRA Research, and she has passed her ch chartered financial analyst, uh, fondly known as CFA paper, uh, papers. So she basically passed all three papers, um, all at one time so basically they, she she just sat for all of it for one time and she passed and so i've been speaking about uh gender pay gap and mortality rate and sort of indicate that you know actually personal finance varies among gender um, it varies among your status your mar uh, whether you're married you're single it really varies um, among your situation so which is why this coffee chat series today we will address things like that so let's talk about what's really happening and Probably I'll just start off with Ian. Um, what are your thoughts on the the loan moratorium that was given by the banks? Uh, so there's a question. Uh, so we're all wondering if we should take it. Like, should you know, if we have enough money to pay for it, should we, you know, take advantage of this? That you know, uh, there's this loan moratorium that is available. So um, maybe Ian, you can share on your thoughts on this. This period is four, right? So if you expected it to be six months, because everybody talk about six months moratorium and stuff like that, then you need to budget how much money can you put? Can you put aside for these things? So you are no longer in saving mode, no longer in investing mode. You're thinking about okay, I need to survive. I have uh, maybe you have kids to feed, bills to pay. So you need to figure out how much you have. So if then you have enough to handle this period, okay, then make sure you stick very well within that budget. You need to calculate how, or rather keep track of what is it that you are spending. I always tell uh, uh, friends and clients of mine, I say that the, the thing that you can change most normally is your day-to-day -day living expenses. That's the one you can really uh, adjust. Uh, you can decide you want to order, uh, take out or order you know, uh, food deliveries twice a week, five times a week, or you can just go to get your groceries. So things like that you can, you can adjust. So if you have enough money to handle that session, great. But what if you are in a situation whereby, oh, you know, you, you don't quite have enough. Uh, your expenses, the essential expenses are a bit too high. Well, in that case, then you have to try and take money from other sources. Right? Okay, so normally I would say try and take money from sources that you own without having to get into any uh, borrowing. So, for example, if you have any in, uh, small investments in funds or you have fixed deposits, you might want to take that. Uh, failing which, then, you know, the government has announced that you can actually withdraw from EPF. I think Lexi reminded me this uh, earlier, earlier this week. Uh, basically, that's I-list story. You can take about 500 ringgit a month out of uh, EPF. So, that can sustain you for a little bit. But 500 isn't a lot. So, what if you've got a big family to feed? So then there you have to perhaps start thinking about, you know, perhaps borrowing some money. Now, if it's extremely urgent, I think the fastest way would be to take a credit card advance if you have a credit card. Now, I highly, highly discourage this. If you can not do it, please don't do it. But in emergencies, you know, if you have to do it, you have to do it. Try to take a small sum as you can. You realize you have to pay 5% upfront and then you have the interest rate which is very high and you really need to pay that off very, very fast. But that's another topic about that. So credit card is perhaps one choice. Some banks, if you've got a very good track record, they may allow personal loans. But then again, if you've lost your job, they may also not. So you've got to try and explore this situation. And of course, the government has given some sort of uh, uh, assistance schemes, uh, the Bantuan Sara Hidop, and perhaps for the, uh, the one under LHD and the tax as well. Perhaps you have to do that. And if all of that fails, okay, then I think the, the only other avenue would be to perhaps um, ask uh, friends or, or other family members, which 
I mean, if you have to get to that level, it's actually pretty, pretty bad already. All right. Thank you so much, Ian. Actually, there were some questions probably you'll answer a little bit. One of them asks, it's also about emergency fund. What should my emergency fund cover and how many months? And the other one is, is 9 to 12 months of gross salary untouched sufficient for emergency safety net funds? Is there a generic guideline? So maybe Lexi, you can take that. Um, so generally speaking, most of the uh, financial advisor will ask us to keep about three to six months of uh, emergency fund uh, for yourself. But I think during this COVID-19 happens, right, uh, a lot of people uh, couldn't really survive just with these uh, three to six months of expenses for themselves, okay? But I, I would rather to say that uh, instead of telling you there is a hard route, you no, know, three to six months is, is sufficient for you, why not we just consider things like you no, know, your job stability? So let's say you are taking a full-time job, you have a steady job. I think it's fine to keep about three to six months of worth of your expenses for yourself. It's fine. But let's say you are working as a freelancer, okay? You doesn't have a proper uh, steady income. Your earning is maybe based on daily or even weekly basis or even project basis. So it's very important for you to save even more money if you have instability income, okay? And other than that, we also have to think that how much is your recurring expenses? I think that one is pretty important because uh, let's say in a month, I probably need uh, 500 for my necessities. Then I think you should save slightly more than that in case you need emergency fund for let's say medical expenses or you need to pay for you know, extra uh, interest rate for your credit card debt or, was that, uh, or what. So I think it's quite important to save extra other than your necessity expenses. This is something that we need to consider. There's no hard rule. There's no hard rule saying that I need to keep three to six months, you know. So it's very depends on your, your job stability and also your recurring expenses. And also, are you a debt heavy ticker? Also need to consider. All right. So just now you mentioned debt, right? So there's this question on what's the best method to tackle bad debt. So um, any of you want to take up that question? I guess bad debt would probably be things like you know, credit card, if you have outstanding and, you know, you're finding it tough to try and, you know, you're paying certain amounts, maybe a little bit more than minimum, but you're still accruing interest and every month it's either stagnant or, or your, uh, how much you owe is actually going up. Another one of these could probably be personal loans. You can't make the payments, stuff like that. Usually what I would do is, uh, what I recommend for clients is that I would say, whatever money you have available, uh, the most important debt you probably have to pay off is credit card. So pay that up as fast, as soon as possible. For example, some things may have been done is that let's say somebody um, has a certain mutual fund, right? Mutual fund, or perhaps for Bumi friends, they have a ASB, right? Amana Sam Bumi Putra. And that's making their 6 to 7%. But then on the credit card, they are incurring 18%, 16% interest per year. So I would probably say shift that over, pay off the credit card debt, uh, whatever you can. If you really cannot, now, if you really cannot um, due to, I mean, you're paying, but you're not paying enough. So... I would actually recommend you to go to a Bank Nagara agency. It's called AKPK, Agency Counseling Dan Perundingan Credit. A lot of people are very scared about it. Now, I, they, they feel that, you know, oh, uh, I may be declared bankrupt or whatever. But you must remember this AKPK uh, is designed by Bank Nagara to protect you, the, the citizen, from being bankrupt. Because being bankrupt comes with a whole list of problems. So AKPK is designed to protect you from being bankrupt. They can uh, fix their interest, the interest rate, restructure for you. And at the end of the day, I find that they are more or less one of the, the agencies which really, really uh, try to help you as the, as the uh, individual, uh, as the citizen. So go over to them if you have trouble and you can't arrange things out. Because if you have the money, then pay off the bad debt. If you don't and you need some help uh, to avoid uh, accruing too much interest on your go to AKPK. I think it's quite straightforward. There are a lot of resources on it. You can just Google AKPK, how to do it, fill in the forms arrange a, uh, a, a meeting with them and then just get over. I think normally that would be the uh, avenue to go for. Don't let it accrue. Thank you, Ian. So mentioning about accrue, right? So definitely everybody knew about the bank moratorium. And then there's this question from our participant, which is also my question, actually, I think. Uh, I mean, I share the same thought. Should we take the bank moratorium and which option do you think is the best option to take for repayment? Uh, can I get this one? Yeah, sure. <laughs> okay, so uh, I think the, the latest thing that has come up on the moratorium is that 
there has been a bit of a U-turn regarding the higher purchase, the car loans. Previously, we may have thought that, that there was uh, no interest on the six months, in which case it's a no-brainer to take it. Uh, but now they say there will be interest and there will be an accrual. So how I would recommend you to take a look at whether you should take or not to take. Okay, let's do one simpler method and then we'll do a bit more complicated. The simpler method is this. You're going to pay X amount of interest. All right. So let's say if it's about a 500,000 property 500,000 property loan that you have and over six months, let's say you pay additional 10,000 of interest. By taking the moratorium, you would have to pay additional 10,000 ringgit interest. Now, if you divide it over the number of months, maybe it's like 30 ringgit, 40 ringgit extra per month. It's not huge, but the total cost to you is this 10,000 ringgit. So uh, in, in making this decision, you think about this. You are buying six months of free cash flow. I mean, six months, you're going to have easier cash flow. That's what your product that you're buying is. Your cost to you is 10,000 ringgit. So then you have to decide, is that worth the 10,000? Now, if you really can't make ends meet, right? Uh, either your, your, your spouse or one of your children who is contributing to the family has lost their job, uh, or perhaps yourself, you have uh, unpaid leave or whatever it is, and suddenly you don't know how to put food on the table, then there, it's a no-brainer. Take the six-month moratorium. You need the cash flow. But for a lot of people who say that, you know what, I kind of have the money to, to pay this loan. You know, and it's not too big a deal because uh, when I took the loan, I already had these things in mind. Okay, so if you are in that situation, then I would argue and say, then why are you taking the loan for? Why would you want to pay this additional 10,000 ringgit? It's a cost. Yes, you pay it over many, many, many years, but 10,000 ringgit, you know, why, wouldn't you, why would you want to pay this for something that you won't use, right? Would you buy a, uh, so let's say, a, an expensive vacuum cleaner for 10,000 ringgit and then just put it in the shelf? You wouldn't do that, right? So then comes to the little bit more uh, advanced level of things whereby, what if you then use this six months of free cash flow savings and invest it, right? And invest it and try and make more money than actually you would pay. So again, you come to think about this from a cost point of view. So you're paying 10,000 ringgit, again, for this example, huh? 10,000 ringgit. And you basically, if you want to consider that your investments overcome that, your investments need to generate an additional 10,000 ringgit for you to break even. Now, if you feel you can do that, perhaps if you know you are very good with investments or there are very good investment opportunities, and of course there are those which, which perhaps do that, then you can also do it. But you must understand that you are taking the risk, right? And this is not, you know, you have to generate this 10,000 ringgit in one year. You have to generate this as fast as possible, right? You can take two years, three years, four years, five years. As long as you generated another 10,000 ringgit, on top of whatever cash flow you've saved, then you've broken even with what your cost is by taking the moratorium. So it's up to you how you want to handle that. Some For some people, they say, oh, no, I don't take the risk. Uh, it's, it's, uh, I, I don't invest a lot with me. I, I like something low risk. Uh, then, then you know that it's going to take many, many years for you to accumulate this additional 10,000. But if you know if you're somebody who, who, who is into a bit more dynamic investments, maybe in, within three years, you sort of project that you may be able to make a total return over three years of uh, 15 to 20%, then sure right? Then you take it. But you must understand that you are taking that risk. All right. Thank you so much, Ian. How we start to, uh, how does one, okay, let's say a fresh grad just started work. Uh, what will your advice be in terms of how do this fresh grad start, their, start to manage their personal finance? So what's step one, step two, or step three, if there's any? Yeah. Yeah, Lexi? Yeah. So I will take over these questions. I think for the fresh grades, uh, most of them maybe have a very minimal financial cash flow uh, for now, especially after uh, utilizing for their own necessities is very limited. So last time how I used to manage is that I segregate clearly that which one I want to go for investment and which one I want to uh, part it from my saving for my, for my emergency fund. So assuming that fresh grade is only have, uh, you probably only have 10,000 on hand right now, so maybe you can just uh, segregate it into uh, 30, 70 portions. Okay, 30 maybe for the investment. So I, 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 pretty, I find it pretty important for these fresh grade to start learning about investment when they are young. So when you have time, start to explore about investment, how to grow your money. Because I understand that from the age 20 to 30, probably you, uh, you, have, a, you, you have a lot of time. Okay, one thing. Secondly is that this moment, is the best time for you to, yes, for wealth productions, means you want to buy insurance at this moment, but at the same time, when you want to grow your money, right, you have to prepare before that. Not only like uh, when you start planning to have a family, then you only start to think about how I grow my money, how should I grow my money? Then only start learning about investment. I think it's a bit too late. Mm -hmm. So I personally, I start when I was uh, uh, 20. So it is, it's like, 
you start from a young first, then you have time to explore, you gain the experience from there, and then slowly move on, you can actually know how exactly, how the stock market works, how, how you want to grow your uh, investment. That one is very important. Okay, so Lexi is really speaking from a point of view as a CFA, as a chartered financial analyst, uh, start investing. Um, may uh, does Ian, do you have anything to add, or you know, from your point of view as a financial planner, how do you advise uh, fresh grads who come to you when they say, "I want to manage my personal finance"? Well, I definitely will encourage them to manage the personal finance. Uh, but I think financial management goes beyond just uh, investment. Uh, like what Lexi says, she did something very, very good when she was young. She already knew this is my X amount of money that I need to invest and therefore this amount I'm going to allocate it as optimally as possible. But for a lot of people, coming to that conclusion of how much do I need to set aside for investment is the first hurdle, right? I don't know how much I should set aside. I feel I don't have enough money, things like this. So deciding where to invest is kind of a, a, a bit too far. So the first thing I would recommend for, for fresh graduates is to manage cash flow. Cash flow is perhaps one of the, I guess, the, the most important thing when it comes to personal financial management. Now, I come from a train of thought or rather uh, a school of thought, sorry, that uh, you, if you don't really like to, you know, uh, sort of read into investments, you, you, know, you find it very dry, very boring, you'd rather spend time with your loved ones than to spend your Saturday staring at finance stuff, I would say then, you know, then don't force yourself to. Don't force yourself to do that. Uh, but you do need to make sure that you have allocated money into somewhere that you don't need to look at so much, but uh, still is generally uh, performing reasonable level. Now, you will not be at the same re- performance as somebody who has who really, really takes their time and goes into individual details, but at least it's something. Because at the end of the day, I, I believe that finance is to enable us to have a good life. Okay, so coming back to this, this for fresh graduates, make sure your cash flow is good. I find the bad habits that are uh, sort of that, that I notice in my sort of a 30 year old plus clients is that has started from very, very young. So used to eating out a lot, you know, they, they see, uh, you know, those, the, you walk around in the streets and people ask you, hey, can you donate this and donate that? And, and oh, would you like to sign up for this? It's only 15 gig a month. And they start to accrue all these little, little two, uh, double digit sort of a monthly commitments, right? And then suddenly they realize there's no money left. So all these little bit of bad habits, they start to pick up. Um, is normally what I would tell them to, to try. You have to try and avoid, basically. So when you are in your 20s, you have fewer commitments, right? You generally uh, don't have as many, uh, don't have dependents, perhaps if you need to support only your parents a little bit. So you find that your cash flow is a bit more free. So you start to take on all these things. And if you continue to take this on and build, continue these habits, then you're going to find you have financial, a little bit of financial tightness when it comes to have time to have children, wedding, and, and things like this. So when you're a fresh graduate, manage your cash flow well. If you have the availability, start building some investments, start saving because you are able to save more when generally when you are younger compared to when you start to have a family. So that's probably what I would say to a fresh graduate. Okay. So I guess we have a few questions in terms of this is, so Ian, you've already mentioned about the bad habits that you see, right? And so there's this one question from someone who said that they're actually not a fresh grad. So uh, I guess they're just really trying to find better ways to manage uh, how do you grow your investment when you are 30 to 40 years old and really trying to manage your personal finance even better at the age of 30 to 40 years old? I think 30 to 40 years old is still uh, young, okay? So still young, don't worry, okay? The general idea is that if you want to think about financial planning as a journey, so let's say we're in KL, right? And you want to go to Ipoh, right? So that's our journey you want to take. And we're going to choose, let's say, a certain vehicle to use. This is our financial portfolio, our investments and insurances and everything put together. This vehicle is going to take us to that, to that uh, location. Then the petrol, the fuel that we use is our cash flow, our monthly cash flow. So the, the same rules apply. You've got to manage your cash flow very, very well. Then you've got to start building your portfolio. You've got to build some investments. Now, if you are a bit older, then you have to be very much more serious. So something about the people uh, in the 20s normally would say, oh, let me try first. Let's do a little bit first. Let me test a bit. Now, but in your 30s, you can't do that you got to really commit to a certain strategy. Like, okay, you need X amount of money by age 55. Uh, this is the strategy. 50% we're going to do from something low risk, secure. 50% we're going to do something a little bit more dynamic. Uh, and you need to put aside 2,000 a month. And let's say they can put 2,000 a month. Then you have to do it. A lot of people get a bit of a shock. They say, oh, uh, you know, I, I haven't done much before. 2,000 is certainly a huge amount. But, you know, you're in your 30s. You would need to actually be more serious and take initiative uh, in that. But about whether, you know, it's... Uh, with a good time or not, I would say 
better then than in your 50s, right? Better in your 30s to 40s than in your 40s to 50s. Uh, so as long as you have decided and you realize that you do need to manage your personal finance, that will be a very, very good thing to do at any point in time. Preferably the earlier, the better. But you know what they say, the best time was yesterday, the second best time is today. So that's probably what you want to do. Right. So, okay. So we've been talking so much about fresh grads and then we also talk, we also mentioned a little bit about 30s. What about, and I'm sure this is pretty, it's, it's, it's not a taboo anymore. Like what about single mothers who, you know, have child to feed and then still need to manage their finances. So how do they, how do they start or in fact, or how do they keep afloat when it comes to all this, um, personal finance. Okay, I'll take that. C or Ian uh, can take that or both of you can take it and just uh, build on each other's points as well. Sure, I'll, I'll start first, right? Um, single mother, okay, so same, similar, similar concept. You got to figure out what are your expenses, what is necessary, and then you got to figure out what is your income. So it's all about income versus expenditure. You got to try to keep it within, within certain limits. So as a single mother, you only have uh, one income generally. So if you have one child, two child, two children, these kind of things, then you need to figure out how much that will cost. Uh, I know the government has certain schemes to help single mothers. So if you really, really need that help, you can go to help, get the help. But if not, then I guess the end of the day is to perhaps live within, within your means, right? If you are not working, then find a job. If you are working, then, you know, uh, make sure you allocate that money well. Uh, I, I don't, but I'm not saying that it's easy and, you know, you all should do this right away. No, it, it is a very difficult situation to be in. Uh, but we've got to make the most of it and try to uh, allocate. The more, I guess, the, the, the smaller your resource pool, the better managed you, it has to be. You can't afford to waste that one ringgit. If you have a lot of money, then, of course, you know, oh, oops, I I bought something which cost 10 ringgit extra. But you, the smaller your, 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 your income, the more you have to manage. Over to Lexi. I think other than managing your cash flow, uh, one thing I want to really highlight is that when you have, when you only have a one income sources, right? I think the best thing other than cutting your uh, managing your expenses, I think another thing is that you can actually manage your money through some of the dividend funds okay, to give you extra cash flow. I think that would be the, another method for you to uh, have a better management on your money, you know. So other than that, other than uh, Ian's points, I think this would be the best thing also for the single mother to manage their money. Okay, so definitely two different school of thoughts, but also school of thoughts that actually interlink because of course it's very important to have a passion, uh, passion, uh, passive income. And I think one of the questions we can take from Slido is, Lexi, you mentioned about dividends and interest and units, right? So uh, there is a question that asks, where is the best place that we should put our savings? Do we put it in the savings accounts, fixed deposit, unit trust, or ASNB? I think I personally will think that, let's say you want to keep your money in a saving account, definitely the interest rate is very low. Okay, just look at recently, the highest offer is, I think is if not mistaken, it's by private bank. They offer you the FD rates is about 2.65% per annum. So I personally think that 2.65 is very low. But coming back to your personal circumstances, are you able to take risk or you think that you are very conservative, still need to go back to your personal uh, risk appetite. If you can't even take risk, how then you want to invest in stock market or somewhere that give you a higher return? So still need to come back to your personal risk appetite, risk tolerance. So if you cannot take risk, you can just go for dividend funds, okay? Or bond funds would be safer, I would say. If you can't even take the fluctuation of the uh, bond prices, you just go for the FT. But definitely, I want to say that if you want to beat the inflation rate, definitely go for something that gives you higher return, but safer. Thank you, Lexi. Also, there's another question. Uh, so I guess, you know, when it comes to taking risks and all, it also depends on uh, how much you actually have and how much you're willing to put out to risk it, right? And of course, then it goes back to how, when it comes to the, the topic on how much I actually have is also back to how you manage your cash flow. So there's a question and from the participant, how do we manage our cash flow and, uh, and what's the best way to actually to be more aware of our own cash flow? Yeah, so maybe Ian, you can take this because you mentioned that for fresh grads or even people in their 20s, they tend to be very not so disciplined in terms of managing their cash flow. So I guess the question is really about how do we be aware of um, our cash flow and not let it flow to like little, little streams. Okay, how do we manage cash flow? At the end of the day, right, uh, one of all of the money that we make, we, we tend to spend it in various places. So the first step is to know where exactly you spend. Now, there are different financial personalities and some people who love to keep records, monthly you know, income uh, expenditure, and then those who, who, who generally uh, don't like so much. So trying to find a middle ground between the two would be, I would say, you do need to know at least on at least one month basis 
what are you spending on? And of course, what you spend on during this MCO period doesn't count because huh? it's not going to repeat. So it's like before MCO, post MCO, right? What is it that you spend on in a month? You know, let's say you go to your office on the way there, you, you get a coffee, right? So you mark that down. You have to spend a little bit of time, at least one month, I would say, to track what is it you are spending on. From there, then you take a look at that list and you say, okay, what is really necessary or what necessary doesn't mean that, you know, it's needed to survive. But necessary is like, oh, I need my coffee getting to work or I, I, I need to have uh, this type of lunch for lunch, whatever it is. You feel that's relatively important to you. You keep those and then you take a look at the stuff that you can cut. Again, you can cut how many coffees you have in a week. You can't cut your rental amount, right? So you, all those fixed costs, you can't change. So once you've taken note of what you ex you spend during that particular month, you know, and most people when they when they do look, they say, oh wow, I didn't know I spent so much on grab food, you know, kind of things like that. So once you have that, then you sort of fix this amount will be my monthly budget. Now assuming this is a reasonable amount, if if you're spending four thousand and you earn three thousand, then you have to revise that. But let's say you earn three, four thousand, five thousand, whatever it is, and you spend one thousand five hundred ringgit on all these things put together, day to day expenses. Then you keep that budget. All right, uh, you keep that budget and you make sure you stay within that amount. So I would recommend the best way to handle this is to have a separate bank account, preferably in a different bank, where you transfer your, 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 your expenses. So let's say your income comes in, your salary comes in, you transfer this thousand five into the other account. Boom, that's it. And you just spend that. So you can see how much you have left. And basically from this account also, you will transfer to savings, transfer to all your important things. And I would also recommend to have a sort of uh, at least one account which, which you can use for fun things, a fun fund of sorts uh, that you can enjoy for your big ticket items, you know, traveling or if you're, you know, like, you're like, like shoes, you want to buy shoes, things like this, uh, you have that. But at the end of the day, cash flow is you have to watch what you spend on. So uh, general, uh, I guess a formula you can think about it is this. Managing cash flow should always be income minus your savings or all the important things first equals expenditure. So income minus savings equals expenditure. That way, expenditure is limited by whatever else important that you need to do. Unfortunately, in real life practice, I mean, I don't blame people, we're not generally taught about this. Most people do income minus expenditure equals savings. So ex expenditure goes all the way up, saving goes all the way down, right? So then that, that, that becomes a problem. You find a demand money, I have no money, or I'm negative, or I can't pay off my credit card bill and stuff like that. So do it the other way around. Save first, put all the important things aside, you know, uh, your loan repayments, you know, your any certain small commitments, important ones, loans, all the paid out, and then only spend the rest. Hopefully you have enough at the end, but you have to budget and figure, figure it out. Yeah, someone just mentioned, like, someone just put a statement on Slido say that I save a lot every month, but end of the year, my savings all disappeared. So probably you can take Ian's advice to keep track of your spending and probably to see where where the money actually flows. And so Ian, I can, can I say that that is actually your habit in managing your personal finance? Yeah, I definitely make sure that, uh, you know, all my important things are paid for first. And then I, I and then I just kind of spend, because I, I, I'm the type where I don't really like to, to have to dollar and send everything, you know? I, I don't even, I don't track my personal, this personally, and perhaps as a financial planner, I shouldn't be saying this, right? I don't track my individual uh, spendings as much. I track how much goes out total for spending. So let's say 1,000 goes out for spending and I, how long do I take to, to use that in a more macro scale? Uh. So I know 1,000 was used for day-to-day -day expenses. Whatever I use it on for however long, it, that's, that's it. Uh, I don't say like, okay, I, I, I've spent on this and that and that. But perhaps because I generally don't <laughs> buy as many small things. Uh, but at the end of the day, it depends up to you. Some people are perfectly fine with keeping track records, then I say that's fantastic. Some people don't like it. And so I think the minimum level to do is at least track how much leaves your bank account for your, for your spending. So if you transferred, withdrew money from the, from the ATM, right? You do 300 ringgit, you know you're going to spend. I mark this as 300 ringgit of spending for the month. And that just kind of gives you a ballpark uh, figure. I think if you do need to go into dollars and cents for your actual financial planning, like really you have to go, I think uh, it's a bit, uh, you've got a bit of a problem already. You have to go to such small detail. Okay. Lexi, what about you? Like what's your habit in managing your cash flow. Just now I actually saw this comment, I feel, I find funny, is it, um, because I believe that self-control is just a myth, you know? Nobody can actually save their money and then they don't spend it, it's very hard. And also I realized that a lot of Malaysians tend to uh, save their money using a very manual method. So for example, I give you an example. So let's say I know that 1st of January, my pay is going to come in, okay? Then I just you know uh, maybe deduct 20% of it, into my saving account. I transfer it 
uh, in a manual basis. Why not we can actually leveraging on the digital banking? Right now, the digital banking is very innovative. Okay, it gives you very convenient functions. There is one function uh, in the digital banking called set recurring income uh, transfer, recurring transfer. So you know that when your pay is going to come in on 1st of January, you just set it on the day itself. Hey, I'm going to transfer uh, maybe 30% of my um, income. I transfer it to my saving account automatically and make sure that the saving account, you don't really touch it all the time. You know, this is how I, this is how I do. Secondly is that uh, for those people that tend to do saving, right, they can use another method uh, by using EPF, you know, because normally how we contribute, contribute EPF, right, we're using this mandatory method. We can actually extra contribute, uh, do, I mean, voluntary contribute to the EPF. So it's a kind of a no passive saving for you. It doesn't, it doesn't need to keep track on it, but it makes sure that it will help you to save your money automatically every month. And also you can enjoy this uh, dividend, EPF dividend for four to 5%. So just some point out, uh, there's one question from audience, right? Saying that, uh, should I keep my money in FD or what? So if you think that the, the interest rate is very low, you can use this method as alternative saving methods for you, for you yourself. You know, just make it voluntary uh, contributions to the EPF. And then you can not only enjoy four to 5% of a dividend. Secondly, you will enjoy the tax uh, exemptions, you know, so uh, uh, I think it's about 6,000 a year. So you're not only enjoying uh, a dividend, but also tax exemptions. It's kind of another way to save your money as well because right. it doesn't need extra tax, right? All right, thank you so much, Lexi and Ian. And I think just to go back to what Ian said, like when he mentioned that uh, during MCO, we don't really need to track what you spend, right? But um, Ian, I think we still need to um, take into consideration some people do have at the cart moments, you know, you add to cart. <laughs> because all the online shoppings that are happening and so I think that's also very important to take note just to make sure that your you know suddenly your income is um, you know flowing away so I guess that's really all back to uh, self-control and also how you really manage your own cash flow and being very disciplined and and I think I really like Lexi's idea on you know contributing more to EPF if if yeah if you know if you're someone who you cannot really control your savings so let's just to just to wrap up a bit on like the savings and also the habits, right? Um, there's a question that asks like, do you recommend an, any app that you think you would recommend to track your savings if you have, but if not, then that's also fine. Like, is there an app that you suggest to your clients to use or do you usually ask them to go back to, you know, the old way of tracking? Usually I wouldn't, I don't have any specific, um, I guess, uh, recommendation the most important thing that the app does for you is for you to be able to see your information right so it, it is basically a personal preference how you want to track i know uh, there are some friends uh, who like to track on excel i mean as boring as excel gets right uh, but they like it because they do it on an everyday basis some people you know the, there are some uh, budgeting apps whereby you know they, they animate it for you and you can see as you're building cities and whatever you like to do that um, as long as as this app is something that you generally find easy or reasonably easy to use, you understand how it works, and you can view your information. There's no point you put all your information in and you can't see at the end of the month how much went to expenses for this, how much you spent on, let's say, drinks or, or entertainment. If you can't see that, then I would say the app is not serving its purpose. But as long as whatever app you like, uh, just take a look. I think there's so many on this Google and on, yeah. on the app stores and all that, right? Something that you like, uh, anything that you like, as long as it gives you the information that you need to know, which is to know how much you spend and uh, a simpler, easy enough. Because if it's too difficult to record, there will come times where you say, ah, I'll do this uh, 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 when I get back to the office and then you forget. You know, personally, I, I've had that problem as well. So something easy to use, something very quickly to key in. And of course, you can see your information. It's up to you, the rest. <laughs> All right, thank you so much, Ian. Um, Lexi, do you have anything to add to that? Actually, I think of something, right? Uh, because currently I'm using OCBC Bank and also Maybank. And they actually come up with uh, this very innovative idea whereby when you want to track your expenses, uh, expenses, they actually have this analysis for you. It doesn't need to keep track using Excel or whatever. doesn't need to use any wallet apps to track your expenses as well. They actually come up with uh, this analysis. I'm not sure uh, other banks, but this is this two platform, uh, this is what I'm using right now. I can actually keep track on my expenses, where I spend, is it on the food, groceries, or whatever. You can actually keep track on that using the digital banking. All right. It's very innovative, yeah. Yeah. Uh, at the end of the day, like I mentioned, uh, Lini Malaysia is really to educate and enable and empower female. 
and in terms of uh, helping uh, female to actually have more sense of control in in their personal finance i think since both of you are experts right i guess we just really want to know if were there any difference between genders i mean i'm sure you have clients who are you know male clients and also female clients what are the patterns that actually you picked up in a sense like you know uh, why why is it that it's hard for female to have control in their personal finance or in fact why is it harder for your male clients to control certain parts of their finance i'll take this question yeah sure so i think it all boils down to a very emotional kind of uh, of thing let's say for for for, for guys right for for males uh, for men uh, a lot of the societal sort of uh, uh, impact is on you know you need to be the one taking care of your finances you need to be the one handling things and so if you don't do that then therefore you know you you you're you're not being a man and so then they all want to take things in their own hands even when they don't have enough time so what happens is they end up they don't do very much yeah? so but of course men is not our topic today right so we're talking about well, ladies right so for for ladies um i actually personally find that they're more responsible okay so ladies you're all generally much more responsible uh, regarding personal finance, you all, I, I, I know now, especially in the, in the newer generations, the desire for financial independence is much higher. Okay, some things I always tell uh, lady audience would be probably be like, when you grow old, right? When you grow old, you have, let's say, three things that you will have. Uh, you'll have a husband, perhaps. Uh, you have maybe children and you have your own money. So which one of these three are you most sure will take care of you? Right? And the answer, of course, would be money. Your own money is the one most likely to take care of you, right? So you do need to actually manage, manage well. Uh, but then again, on the flip side of things, I, I also understand that for most uh, people, okay, not in the financial industry, and most people who, who do not have quite the interest in finance, we would rather not have to deal with this finance issue if we didn't have to. Right? If, if, if it wasn't really so, so important, I would rather uh, don't have to look at it. So you got to kind of balance that. So don't, there's no need to be so in depth that you have to, you know, read every night and, you know, tweak all your personal finance, things like that. You don't need to do that, but you do need to make sure that at the very basic level, your income and expenses are, are well managed. And then from there, once that is done, then you think about growing your money further, something whereby you can tolerate and you can handle, right? What do I mean by handle? So there is a very big uh, desire to do stocks. All right, especially in the in I guess in the Asian culture, stocks is a very big thing. Now, are stocks bad? No, stocks are actually very very good. But what if you're the type of person who does not like reading financial reports? What if you're the type of person where you don't have time during the day? You know, you have meetings throughout the day. You can say, "Sorry, boss, I need to sell my stock first. You can't do that, right? So if you don't have the capability, the capacity to do that, I would I would say then look for alternatives. You could do funds. You could do something a bit more passive, things like that. So find something that, that, that fits you. But at the end of the day, I guess uh, we've gone through off the topic. But for ladies, generally, I find uh, more responsible, perhaps a little bit more conservative because I find most people don't generally want to really go down into details to tweak. Uh, but it's better than doing nothing. So if you really want me to weigh to, to and perhaps if there are any guys tuning in as well, uh, um, and perhaps as a guy myself, I say, normally I find ladies better with the financial management. Guys think they want to be superstar, hotshot investors, right? Uh, so so a, a smaller portion make it, most don't. Whereas ladies in general, majority who do want to take some action on finance, I find that normally it's better. The average is better. <laughs> All right, I think that was very nicely summer, you know. Uh, you know, ladies, you might have a husband, you might have your children and three things and money. So which one will actually take care, uh, take care of you is definitely your own money. And yeah, so thank you so much, Ian, for summing it up uh, nicely. Um, Lexi, do you have anything to add before uh, we move on to a question from uh, the floor? Because I think there were some very famous questions in terms of insurance, which we haven't sort of touched a little bit. So once, Lexi, you build out a little bit on Ian's point, and then we will just move on to the life insurance uh, question. Okay, I think other than what Ian said earlier, totally agree with him. But uh, I find it nowadays, all the women, right, when they're making their own financial, uh, investment decision, they can make it very quickly. Just how the guy... Uh, make their investment decisions is the same, but I think all comes back all comes back to their uh, personal circumstances, how much debt they have, or even uh, their risk tolerance, their risk profile, risk appetite, all all these still coming back to their personal circumstances. So that's what that's how these women make their investment decisions, and totally agree with what Ian said earlier. 
Yeah, so I guess uh, when it comes to uh, understanding more about risk appetite and risk tolerance, uh, that is definitely on the investment topic, which again, I will highlight again that will be next week. So then all these questions can be brought forward to next week and we will tackle more on that. So um, let's just pick on some of the questions on life insurance. Uh, there is a question, there are a few questions from the crowd actually at that probably asked, life insurance is a way to protect your loved ones and provide them with financial support after you pass on. Would you consider that as an emergency fund? And then there are also a few that also probably ask about um, as a parent, as a, a mom or a dad, do I start investing in my children's future uh, through insurance with savings plan? Yeah. So maybe Ian, you can take that question. Quite a lot of quite a lot of questions all, all together there. So um, yeah. if I miss some, remind me to, to come back to it, yeah? Okay, let's, let's, let's look at the one which says that uh, about uh, life insurance as an emergency fund. Insurance, okay, uh, or rather let's talk about insurance. An emergency, emergency fund has to be something that is liquid enough that you can access it uh, when uh, necessary. And it should not sort of uh, jeopardize your insurance policy as well. So there are some insurance policies which are more uh, growth and return focused. Those normally endowments are not as liquid. I mean, there is a liquid portion to it, a smaller portion that you can withdraw anytime. Depends on product to product. But if you want to consider that an, uh, an, an emergency fund, I guess, okay. But it's normally not very substantial. A couple of thousand thereabouts. So emergency funds need to be quite liquid. Then you talk about the, because um, yeah, life insurance is a very big topic. Okay, so most people would have what we call investment-linked insurance. Huge thing which has sort of exploded in Malaysia the past 10 years. Now, if you really understand the, how life uh, investment-linked insurance works, you know that, or rather I would say that, let me tell you now, that, that uh, investment-linked insurance is not, does not constitute an investment to you. So if you actually want to draw the graph of all, everything like that, basically you overpay for your investment-linked insurance when you're younger so that when you're older, you underpay. That's why it's a flat rate premium that you pay. So what happens is that most people, you will start to notice that you have sort of a surplus that has built up over the years, right? Uh, you, they call this the investment value, the cash value in the account. And for a lot of agents, unfortunately, this is the case. They sell this as your emergency fund. They sell this as your money that you can take out to fund retirement, like an EPF or sorts, things like that. But if you take out this surplus, then in the future, when you underpay for your insurance, your, your policy cannot sustain the higher fees that are being charged, which means therefore then your policy will stop. So if you use that, this kind of policies as your emergency fund, basically what you do, if you take the money out as emergency, then your insurance coverage will stop. If it's a medical policy, life policy, whatever it is, it will stop. And that could potentially have pretty bad ramifications, right? If your medical coverage just stops. And things like that so those policies generally don't use them for investments don't use them for savings don't use them as an emergency fund but if you've already done it no if you've already done that and there is no other choice for money short of taking a loan and you just need this money now then i guess yes take it out uh like i say all hands on deck you need to take out the money to use it for whatever you need to use it but you just must be aware that you're probably jeopardizing your policy coverage in the future so that's regarding the emergency funds. What was the other question about uh, insurances? Should, should a parent start investing in insurance for their children's future? Okay, so that word probably, probably makes Lexi a bit, uh, feel a bit funny, right? Investing in insurance, okay? Um, <laughs> now, I, there are very, very good sort of investment products in insurance companies. There are few, but there are. The majority are not, okay? So at the end of the day, when you want to invest, uh, in, let's say, in an insurance product, you need to understand what is your underlying asset. What is it really that you are investing in? So let's say you invest in this, uh, it's usually an endowment, right? You pay for how many, how many years and then you get like dividends, stuff like that. What does this money get invested in? Now, for a lot of insurance companies, these are bonds, in which case, sure, bonds are safe. You know, if it's a company which has shown good track record investing in bonds, then cool, all good. What about if the, if the product is investing in the investment-linked uh, funds? And these investment-linked funds are more or less unit trusts, lah, okay? so they can be equity and stuff like that. Then you are paying such high fee for, you know, because insurance products normally have a higher fee uh, for an equity level or in, uh, stock level risk. In which case, I would say, why don't you just do stocks yourself or you just do the unit trust uh, directly, all right? So the, the advantage of the... Uh, I guess the product for children's education and things like this is normally 
the insurance on the contribution. So for example, I, I, let's say I buy a policy for, for so-and-so or for my child or whatever it is. Um, and for, it's a contribution over 15 years until he, he's 16, 17 years old. So if something happens to me, then I'm sure this contribution will continue, right? Because they ensure that contribution, it will continue all the way to 15 years old uh, and the insurance company will pay that portion. So I know his, this amount of money for education is, is secure. Uh, that is the advantage of using an insurance policy. So if you want to plan for a child's education, balance it. You have a portion where, okay, um, use the, perhaps the, you know, the insurance, uh, the, the endowment policy, not really interest, endowment policies, whereby you have a minimum amount that you know, if something happens, this amount they're going to get. So perhaps you say this amount is prepared for a public university, right? Public university, this amount, 30, 40, 50K, whatever it is. And then you focus uh, on the, if you are around, if you're, perfectly healthy and you're saving money for the education, put that portion into an investment fund or whatever portfolio that you would like. And that is, and together then perhaps you will give your child a level of a, a local private or, um, you know, a, a, a simple overseas education and things like that. So that's how I would do it. Don't put everything into the insurance policy. Now, regarding and the insurance policy, again, I just want to reiterate, regarding the insurance policy that you use for this education, as far as possible, try to make sure the insurance benefits on the policy are at minimum. So if you have this policy for child education, the objective is returns, right? But if you've put 100,000 death benefit, 200,000 death benefit, you put a medical card on it, you put critical illness, disability, uh, you put um, accidental benefits. So all these things have costs, right? And so these things will deplete from your fund. So it's kind of like you want to buy a policy or you want to, to, to prepare for his education. So make sure that is uh, well done. The ones that I normally recommend for clients, normally I would try to make sure that they are at least as far as possible. If the coverage can be not applicable or, or at absolute minimum, that would be better. And if they want to buy a medical insurance for their child, then this is a separate policy altogether. So that's, I would say, for insurance for, for education. Thank you, Ian. Okay, so um, I guess, you know, when it comes to all this, it's always back to how you actually want to manage and how which which one you actually want to put in. Do you want to put into insurance fully or do you want to split into half? So I'm going to recap a little bit on uh, what we've discussed today. And of course, uh, when it comes to your emergency fund, it's it's acceptable if it's about three to six months of emergency funds, but at the same time, you need to be wary of your recurring expenses. And of course, uh, emergency fund has to be liquid. So some insurance products are not as liquid as you think it is. So probably that one, you know, uh, all of you have to be a little bit more careful on that. And definitely when it comes to tackling debt, make sure you pay off your credit card debt as soon as you can. But if you really cannot, you can always sign up for AKPK. And uh, of course, when it comes to personal finance and managing your own personal finance, it's all down to managing your own cash flow regardless you're a fresh grad or you're in your 30s and um, try to kick away all your bad habits uh, when it comes to you know little little things that you want to purchase or even a lot of all those online shopping or your add to cart moments and the formula that Ian has um, gladly shared to us is income minus your savings and all the important things first then that equals your expenditure so um, of course uh, hopefully you know we can take up on certain of this quick knowledge that we can, um, that all of you can actually take back and probably uh, we want to do a call to action to everybody. Yeah, so definitely take this time, uh, take this, you take the time to learn about managing your own personal finance because personal finance equals freedom. So thank you so much, Ian and Lexi. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Bye.